Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, Threat Assessment. The worst scenario would be something explodes and we are not ready. The Justice Minister appears before the Rouleau inquiry. What advice did he give the Prime Minister before the Emergencies Act was invoked? Also... This legislation is designed to be a constitutional shield to protect Albertans. The Alberta Premier makes good on a promise, moving forward with her Sovereignty Act as she introduces inflation checks for Albertans and health reforms for the province. Coming up, we'll speak to the leader of Alberta's opposition, the NDP's Rachel Notley. And... Russia launches multiple missile strikes into Ukraine. We'll speak to a former member of parliament about the humanitarian crisis it is creating. This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. The Federal Justice Minister David Lametti was the first of three ministers who appeared today at the Rouleau inquiry. And while he did invoke solicitor-client privilege to deflect a number of questions, the minister was clear. He believed the decision to invoke the act was the government's right to assess, not law enforcement agencies, nor does he think the act is limited by the CSIS assessment for a national threat. Take a listen. Given the different purposes of the CSIS Act, uh, given the different goals that CSIS has with respect to why it is, uh, why it is using a Section 2 definition uh, for one of, its, uh, one of its investigations in order to get to further uh, inquiries, is different from the context in which it has been incorporated into uh, the Emergencies Act. And the, the, the decision-making body is different. It is not CSIS. It is, it is the governor and council. So there is a, a wider, as you've heard from a number of different witnesses this week, there is a, a wider set of inputs that are more than just CSIS inputs. Uh, you've also heard from CSIS about the specific rules of thumb that they use in order to, in order to, to, to interpret Section 2, which aren't uh, necessarily imported into uh, Section 16 because it's a different decision maker. And all I want to confirm, sir, is that as far as CSIS was concerned, using their interpretation of threats to the security of Canada, that definition was not met under the CSIS Act. And for the purposes of uh, CSIS in the CSIS Act, yes, I'll agree with that. And again, that was David Lametti. Now, he was followed by his cabinet colleagues, the Defence Minister Anita Anand and the Transport Minister Omar Al-Gabra. And to walk us through today's testimony, we're now joined once again by Joanna Smith and Chris Nardi. Joanna is the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Canadian Press. Chris is covering the inquiry for the National Post. Uh, Good to see both of you again. You too, Michael. Good to see you. Okay, Joanne, I'm going to get you to start us off because going into this, people were hoping to get a sense of the advice Lametti provided to the Prime Minister. But given that the Justice Minister invoked solicitor-client privilege, I'm wondering whether you, you, amongst others, got a better sense of that advice. Not particularly. I think, you know, what we were really keen to have any insight into was the process by which Liberal Cabinet Ministers ultimately determined the act was necessary. Um, and and Lemay wouldn't really offer any insight into that. And so 
With this solicitor client privilege, um, you know, we issue sort of preventing him from answering some of these things fully. We're, we're really left without the answer to the key question. What legal advice did Lametti provide, did the Department of Justice provide to the federal government as a rationale for invoking the, the act last winter for the first time, of course, since it replaced the War Measures Act in 1988? And, you know, the commission lawyer, Gordon Cameron, really presented this as a bit of a conundrum. He says, we're really trying from the beginning of this proceeding, we've we try to lift the veil, he said, over over what, you know, what has been made much of a black box um, around this central issue. And he, he says, we just regret ends up being a, you know, absence of transparency on the part of the government and not being able to answer that key question. Um, Lametti, for his part, he said, listen, you know, solicitor-client privilege is not mine to waive. Um, but he also said that it was up to him, really. He would advise that it shouldn't be waived. Uh, he considers this a really important fundamental principle to the way the government works and the role of the attorney general. So that's sort of where we are with that. And, and as you might remember, um, you know, this, this Department of Justice uh, opinion was sort of key it formed the basis for a lot of other people's opinions that ultimately led to to that decision. So the fact that we're not getting any more insight into exactly what it was um, is, you know, we're left with that black box as the as the lawyer described it. Yeah, so left without it. But, you know, Chris, in trying to determine whether the legal bar was met for the act's invocation, people have been pointing to the definition within the act itself. And that essentially relies on the CSIS definition of what constitutes a threat. Talk to us about Lametti's interpretation of that, because while he, he did invoke privilege on certain points, he was very clear uh, on his feeling about what constitutes a threat and who gets to make that assessment. Exactly, and it was mostly in line with what government officials have told us throughout the last few weeks and, and even cabinet ministers previously. And for him, the, fa the fact that the Emergencies Act specifically refers to the definition of a national security threat to care, a threat to Canada in the CSIS Act doesn't necessarily mean that it's only limited to that. He said because it refers to it, you can also basically interpret it more broadly. Um, and that is, you know, the basically the only little bit of insight that we got into this famous you know piece of legal advice that we're probably never going to see um, and so we know that they interpreted the wording you know and the definition of a threat to Canada's security on a much broader spectrum than it is specifically written in the CSIS Act. We also know that CSIS never found a threat that met that definition. They've been very clear about that so there was none technically. Um, but as Joanna said, we're probably never going to see that because of solicitor-client uh, privilege. And you know, as Commission Lawyer Gordon Campbell said today, uh, he actually complained of it as a lack of transparency by the government of Canada. He lamented that fact uh, because he said ultimately the commission's goal is to determine was the the way or the reason the government invoked the act legitimate? Did it meet that high legal threshold? Uh, and we're never going to see the advice that it used to determine that it, as cabinet, uh, did so rightfully. And to answer your, your second question, Michael, um, it's cabinet's decision, Lametti says, to ultimately determine if that threshold has met. And he said, obviously, cabinet did determine that. And on February 14th, they invoked the act. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, today is the third day that we've uh, heard from government ministers. And again, lawyers use text messages to help form their questions. And, you know, Joanna, uh, Lametti, Again, while not providing a lot, he was pushed hard on a text exchange uh, that he had with the public safety minister. Uh, talk to us about that exchange and why it mattered legally. 
So Lametti in this text exchange with Mendicino, and yeah, right, you're right. We're getting a lot of really interesting insight um, into the things they talk about in their cabinet group chat. Um, so one of the things Lametti wrote to Mendicino was, you need to get the police to move. And, um, and I'm paraphrasing slightly here, and Canadian Armed Forces, if necessary. Too many people are being seriously, adversely impacted by what is an occupation. I am getting out as soon as I can. Um, and, and at one point, Mendicino also responded, how many, how many tanks are you asking for, in military tanks? Lametti replied, I reckon one will do. So Lametti did frame this as a joke. Um, I, can, I can see, you know, and as a chat with friends, um, not necessarily in his cabinet role, but I, I think it can be hard to figure out where one ends and one begins when they are, in fact, discussing such a serious matter. I can appreciate, uh, you know, I reckon one would do about tanks would have been a joke. It's a little generous, I think, perhaps. We'll see. I, I'm not in anyone's mind about the whole and the Canadian forces if necessary when he's talking about getting the police to move. That That's a little less uh, obviously haha to me. Um, so so we'll see. But I, I think I think it, it does matter um, because Liberty is the Attorney General and the Justice Minister. And I think in this context, he can't separate that fact. Um, and, and I think also, even if it is a joke between friends, it says something about the atmosphere and what they're all feeling at that time. And I think it's really hard to, just like it's hard to separate Lametti as a person and as a buddy of Mendicino from his role of attorney general, it's also, I think, hard to separate uh, or delineate where their feelings ended and their sort of legal analysis began, right? I'm not trying to accuse anyone of being overrun by emotion here, but I think, I think that insight that we're getting into what they are all talking about, what they were all thinking at the time, uh, sort of gives us a sense of, of just how uh, seized they all were with this. Well, it's interesting because the, the second minister to appear today uh, was the defense minister, Anita Anand. And the fact that it was referred to as a joke, this text exchange between the other ministers, was put to the defense minister. And Anand essentially said that everyone in that cabinet room was taking matters seriously. And she said any talk of sending in the military was never really uh, on the table. And you know, in fact, Chris, she seemed to imply that Canadians should know better that there are limits to the kind of military aid that could be provided in this kind of situation. Well, she was extremely clear. I think she repeated it three, four times that the military is in almost any situation by law the last resort. And eventually Lametti also did uh, say that himself. He in fact said the Emergencies Act is technically in a way the before last resort because the military is in fact the last resort. And you could tell that Anita, you know, the Minister of National Defense really wanted to make it clear that there was no real discussion within cabinet about sending the armed forces into uh, basically into the fray to help end the protests. In fact, she didn't even allow the armed forces to send heavy tow trucks, which they usually use to move tanks, uh, into Alberta at Alberta's request to help move the trucks there because for two reasons, one of them being these trucks weren't proper, but another was really just it would be a terrible look. It would be a possibly something that would you know, stoke the fire in Coots, Alberta at the time if they saw any form of military vehicle just roll in and start taking their trucks away. And as we know, there were also weapons amongst the, the protesters at the time. So there was a real concern by the Minister of National Defense at that point to not use the military. Um, you know, to the points earlier, I, I think Lametti did say he was joking about that, but quite frankly, the text that he sends to Marco Mendicino about, you know, you have to get the police 
police and the CAF, the Canadian Armed Forces, if necessary. It doesn't really read like a joke, especially as we know at the time he says he was extremely concerned by the protests in Ottawa. He said he feared for his own safety and he decided to go work in Montreal even at that point because he did not feel safe. He was extremely preoccupied by all this and you could tell that he was really um, talking to cabinet about that. So, you know, yes, I understand, it, you know, he says it was a joke, it might have been banter, but. Um, you know, to the point earlier, it, it might have been hard for some to look at this and say, hey, the Attorney General is mentioning the CAF. Maybe we should at least talk about it. Mm -hmm. uh, quickly running out of time. So, Joanne, I'm going to give you the last question because Omar Al-Gabra, the Transport Minister, is the third minister uh, up on the stand today. What are you listening out for here? Uh, just, just more intel on the economic costs of the border blockades in particular. That's sort of something that really came up with the transport officials who appeared last week. I think they had estimated, it was his department that had estimated, uh, you know, as much as $3.9 billion in trade activity had been halted due to the protests. So to get some insight into his own thinking, the pressure he was under to do something about it, and sort of that economic lens is something I'll be watching for. Okay. Well, as I said uh, to the two of you, really appreciate the time that you've been sharing with us. Thank you again for walking us through this day of testimony. Joanna Smith is the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Canadian Press. Chris Nardi is covering the inquiry for the National Post. Sorry to say, I'm going to bug the two of you again later in the week, but for now, thank you. Thank you, Michael. Thanks, Have a Michael. good night. You too. And a reminder, we have continuing coverage of the Public Order Emergency Commission right here on CPAC. You can also tune into our live stream of each day's testimony. You can find that on our website, cpac.ca. It is also on our website where the full proceedings will be archived and will be available for you on demand. It's been one month since Danielle Smith was sworn in as the Alberta Premier, and last night she addressed the province unveiling an anti-inflation package, addressing sweeping changes her government has made with Alberta Health Services, and reassuring supporters that an Alberta Sovereignty Act was on its way. Take a listen. As Albertans, we love our nation deeply. Canada is our home, and Canadians are family. However, the federal government's treatment of all provinces, most especially Alberta, is unacceptable. The government in Ottawa is intentionally and systematically attempting to control and regulate all aspects of our province's economy, resources, and social programs. Through equalization and transfers, they funnel billions of your tax dollars away from you and into a black hole of federal bureaucracy and vote-buying arrangements in other parts of the country. These continual federal attacks on our economy and provincial rights cannot be allowed to continue. Well, for some reaction, we're now joined by the leader of Alberta's opposition, Rachel Notley of the NDP. Ms. Notley, thank you for being with us. A pleasure to be able to chat with you. Now, the Premier did raise, as you know, a number of issues in her address, but arguably the one topic that will have wider national implications is her Alberta Sovereignty Act. What do you make of her promise and her guarantee, as stated last night, that it will actually lead to greater national unity? 
Well, I, I think that's a ridiculous claim. I think uh, what we know her legislation will lead to is uh, economic uncertainty, uh, a chill on investment, and uh, a, a further deterioration in terms of uh, the ability of Albertans to secure all the things that they can and should get uh, through their relationship with Ottawa. So, um, you know, and you, and you don't have to just ask me uh, for that. You can uh, go through uh, any one of the number of members of her current cabinet who have uh, talked about the uh, uh, chaotic implications and the negative implications of pursuing this act. Now, as you speak to Albertans, Ms. Nolly, uh, I'm wondering just how much support does a Sovereignty Act have amongst uh, residents and potential voters? You know, it really is not top of mind for most voters. Uh, so Alberta, Alberta voters are concerned about affordability and they are concerned about health care. Uh, and the, the Sovereignty Act is something that frankly isn't a big deal one way or the other. And when people do raise it, they mostly raise it to say they don't agree with it. So she's very much catering uh, to a very extreme uh, and very small uh, group of people within Alberta. Um, the people who, you know, the roughly 1% of Albertans who selected her as premier. Um, and she's not listening to the vast majority of Albertans who want to see her focus on much more important issues. Well, let's pick up on those issues, uh, beginning with uh, with healthcare, because uh, Premier Smith did address the changes that uh, she has begun with Alberta Health Services. That includes uh, dismissing uh, Dr. Dina Hinshaw, who led the province's COVID response, and also removing, what, almost a dozen board members from the AHS. Uh, now, she's making the argument that health policies should be more reflective of local priorities. What do you make of that argument, given the actions that she's already undertaken? Uh, well, I don't think it's she. This is this work is anything to do with with local priorities, and I think it's honestly it's window dressing, uh, designed to look like she's doing something, um, uh, and and to sort of keep at bay the the many many folks who are getting increasingly frustrated at her inability to make sound decisions when it comes to healthcare. Whether we're talking about, you know, firing our chief medical officer of health and then turning to someone like Paul Alexander uh, for advice, you know, this is a person who characterized uh, the, the vaccine as a bioweapon for heaven's sakes. Uh, whether it's the uh, videos that appeared uh, recently um, on social media just from, you know, uh, a year and half ago where she is passionately with great conviction arguing her for why people should accept her belief that we need to be paying for visits to family doctors out of our own pockets um, or or whether it's what she said last night which was that she basically declared that notwithstanding the crisis in Alberta's health care she is unwilling to uh, divert more resources to it notwithstanding that of course uh, the UCP has actually cut funding to health care over the last uh, three and a half years so on every front she's making the wrong choices with health care and She's very much out of line with what Albertans want to see happen in order to restore uh, uh, stable and reliable uh, care for them and their loved ones when they need it. Mm -hmm. You also mentioned affordability, and of course that's that's a concern right across the country right now. Uh, the Premier announced new anti-inflationary uh, measures last night. Uh, they include $600 over six months for seniors and children uh, under 18, suspension of the provincial fuel tax for the next six months, a uh, $200 electricity rebate for 
consumers over the winter months, additional funding for food banks. Uh, now, as I said, uh, these concerns over inflationary pressures is shared amongst Canadians. What do you make of those measures of addressing uh, the budgetary concerns that people are dealing with right now? Does it concern you uh, that this money is coming just six months before a provincial election? Well, indeed, you know, you really hit the nail on the head in your last remark there. I mean, let me start by saying, you know, I think some families might find some relief from this, and, and that's good. Um, but the problem is, is that, uh, uh, um, you know, we do have a, a major affordability crisis, and, and this uh, plan leaves about 2 million Albertans, many of whom earn far less than the ones who are getting access to some of these benefits, um, out of the plan. Um, it essentially reads like a pre-election gift card. And so it's not something that Albertans can count on in the long term. And um, uh, it also um, uh, actually fails to make up for the significant um, losses experienced by uh, Alberta's most vulnerable citizens as a result of cuts made by the UCP. Indeed, uh, you know, folks uh, who receive age, which is our disability income, are still $3,000 or so behind where they would have been had the UCP not made the cuts they made when they first got elected. Um, so, yeah, so so the other thing uh, is that a lot of the things that were announced uh, last night were really designed to undo many of the cuts and the downloads onto Alberta families that have happened over the course of the last three and a half but, years. But, uh, forgive Those me for interrupting. Forgive me. About $2 billion. Yeah. yeah, but forgive me for interrupting. But, you know, Alberta is, and perhaps surprisingly so, given uh, inflationary pressures, now in a budgetary surplus position. So arguably the province can now afford it. Is that not true? Oh, for sure. Yeah, no, I think I think some of these things the province uh, can afford, but the point is you need to do it right. You need to direct uh, the resources to the people who most need it. You need to put them together in a way that is uh, reliable and predictable for folks, as opposed to, you know, now you see it, now you don't. Um, and, uh, and you need to make sure that it's meaningful. Um, you know, our, for instance, our electricity system in Alberta is unlike any other part of the country. Sometimes people will will they'll open their bill and discover that that a, a three hundred dollar bill has gone to a th gone up to a thousand dollars because there's a tremendous amount of volatility, and so giving them fifty dollars. You know what? That's not going to help. We had a cap, a price cap in place for folks' electricity, and the UCP took it off. The cap gave people predictability. The fifty dollars does not. So there's ways to do this better and they haven't really designed this in a in a as effective or efficient way as it could have been. Ms. Notley, really appreciate you joining the program tonight. Thank you for all of that. Thank you. Now, uh, programming note, we did invite the Premier Danielle Smith to join our program tonight. We have not yet heard back from her team. Large swaths of Ukraine are without water and without power tonight. Thousands plunged into darkness and left in the cold after much of the country's power grid was destroyed in a barrage of missiles launched by Russia earlier today. The attacks on Ukraine's power grid is meant to create hardship as winter sets in. It has also claimed at least six lives, including that of a newborn at a hospital in the Zaporizhia region. Boris Jifnetsky is a former Liberal Member of Parliament. He is currently the head of the Human Rights Commission of the Ukrainian World Congress, and he joins us right now. Mr. Jifnetsky, thank you for being here. 
My pleasure. Now, as you and I are speaking, we continue to get more details about those missile strikes launched by Russia targeting Ukraine's power grid. You have contacts on the ground in Ukraine. What are you hearing so far? Well, these were uh, devastating, uh, terrifying strikes. Uh, Russia clearly uh, wants to completely uh, disconnect Ukraine from electricity, which means heating. Uh, but there were two types of strikes today, uh, the civilian infrastructure. And in particular, what was worrisome was that they not only hit thermal and hydro power plants, but the electricity feeding Ukraine's nuclear power plants. So there was a period of time today that all of Ukraine's nuclear power plants were off grid. There are emergency backup systems, uh, but that's uh, a terribly dangerous game to play. Uh, if there had been uh, a meltdown at any of those nuclear power plants as a result of these strikes today, that would have had devastating consequences, not just for Ukraine, but across Europe. That's mm -hmm. the sort of game being played. Uh, but it wasn't just civilian energy infrastructure that was being hit. In Zaporizhia, a maternity hospital was hit with a drone. Uh, and this is a continuation of the sort of terror and genocidal nature, speaks to the genocidal nature of this war. Uh, it, uh, it's similar to what we saw uh, with the general leading the, uh, the Russian forces uh, currently in Ukraine, what he did in Syria, hitting hospitals and maternity uh, hospitals. That's what's happening in Ukraine. In it's fact, happened mm -hmm. regularly. And that's uh, contrary to Article uh, D and E of uh, the Genesis, UN Genocide Convention. Well, and, and, in, fact, and in fact, Ukraine is already calling this a war crime. Well, I would take it a step further. They've committed war crimes starting February 24th. Sequential war crimes of every nature, mass rapes, mass killings. Uh, we have the, uh, uh, the burial sites, mass burial sites, uh, destruction of, uh, uh, of civilian infrastructure, uh, uh, crimes that fit the UN Genocide Convention's articles. Uh, every single article from A to E has been met. So this is a genocidal crime and a continuation of sequential genocidal war crimes against the Ukrainian people. So I'm wondering what you think Canada's response needs to be, because Canada has stepped up to, to help Ukraine. And against that backdrop, we're now seeing in the United States, uh, Republicans, some of them who are uh, going to control Congress now, questioning the amount of aid Ukraine is getting from the U.S. All of that said, what do you hope Canada now does? What path do you want Canada to follow at this point? So Canada does have the capacity to provide certain very specific types of military equipment that Ukraine needs. Uh, we do have the M777s. We have approximately uh, 25 that we could provide. Uh, we announced 500 million towards military aid for Ukraine uh, just in this past week. And what could be done 
let's use that money to buy new ones for the Canadian military, but let's ship the ones that are sitting, gathering dust. Uh, artillery is something Ukraine critically needs. We have labs that came back from Afghanistan. Uh, although the minister says many are in decrepit state, there are also, now numbers vary, and I'm not an expert in this, but I've been told over and over that there are some, somewhere from 70 to 90 that could be sent into Ukraine. So there's, uh, there's uh, equipment that could be sent. And of course, we need to ramp up the training uh, of Ukrainian soldiers. Uh, our project Unifier needs to be ramped up in Poland and in the UK. Boris Jeftowski, I appreciate the time today. Thank you for all of that. Thank you. And that is our program for tonight. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. We will see you again tomorrow.